Well, good morning. Today we have the joy of coming back to our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll be looking this morning into Matthew chapter 4, focusing on verses 18 through 22. And I wanted to begin our time this morning just by reading those verses for us. Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22. Matthew writes this, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, this is in its most basic sense, a call to discipleship. It is uh, much more than that because these are, in fact, the first four apostles that Jesus called to a future life of ministry and leadership over the church. But at this point, that's not his goal. He's not appointing them to their positions as apostles. That will come much later in Matthew chapter 10. At this point, this is just an invitation to preparation. It's an invitation to a life of discipleship. It's an invitation to join Jesus, we might say, in a process of learning. And even though his uh, target here are future apostles, there's still much in this that you and I can learn about discipleship in general. There's elements here, I think, that mirror the process for every one of us. At the end of Matthew's gospel, of course, Jesus will give a great commission where he asks every one of us to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, what we have here in Matthew chapter 4, I think is a bit of a model how Jesus went about that task himself. And while there are differences to be sure, because these men were ultimately trained to be apostles, there are certainly parallels and similarities in the way that Jesus envisions making disciples, the kind of disciples He wants, and we might say the way that he wants us to make them. So as we look at this passage this morning, we can reflect, I think, on our own approach to the ministry of discipleship, how it reflects the discipleship of the Lord, whether we can learn basic lessons from the master maker of disciples himself. Now to that end, I want us to take note of three details in Jesus's ministry of discipleship that will help us understand the task, uh, our task of making disciples as well. And the first one that we can take note of is in verse 18 and then again in verse 21. And, and we could call it a call that defied expectations, a call that defied expectations. Now, the passage is very clear as you read through it. These are fishermen that Jesus is calling And they weren't fishing as a pastime. This was their livelihood. This is what they had known all of their life. This is what they were trained to do. And yet, these are the people that Jesus calls not only to be his primary disciples, but eventually one day to be the apostles who are set over the church. These are, at least at the beginning then, not the cream of the crop, not from the halls of the synagogues or the uh, temple compound. That certainly would have been the expectation. Uh, That would have been where the typical rabbi would have been looking for his future trainees and leaders. But these guys were from the rough world of the fishing industry. Josephus tells us 
that at this time there were probably about 420 fishing vessels that worked the waters on the Sea of Galilee every day. It was a, an enormous industry producing all sorts of fish and people would eat them. They would eat fresh fish, dried fish, pickled fish. They would make a sort of a, a, a fish relish that they would put on other things. So this was a, uh, a busy and lucrative ministry. And the Sea of Galilee uh, would have been dotted with towns. In fact, there were nine towns on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee from which a number of boats would have launched uh, each morning uh, and engaged in this fishing industry. These men that we read about, Peter and Andrew, uh, were from the city of Bethsaida, one of those fishing towns, which, uh, as D.A. Carson said, could very, loosely be tra- uh, could very loosely be translated fish town. So, so, so they were, you might say, deeply embedded in this, in this industry. And uh, archaeologists have uncovered some of these boats. In fact, one well-known one uh, that's still on display today is 26 feet long, 7 feet wide, would have carried several men who, as I said, would launch out each morning and, and uh, out into the sea. They would lay their nets or cast their nets, depending on their technique. And here, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were working in their trade. They were in a kind of partnership, Luke 5.10 tells us, in this fishing industry. They had done pretty well for themselves. In fact, Mark would tell us that they actually had, in addition to the brothers and their, their father, they actually had other hired servants who were working their boats. So they had a crew that was working for them. But in spite of what appears to be some uh, modest success, these still were not the most likely candidates, you might say, for future apostles, for teachers over the Christian movement, or even for disciples at the feet of a rabbi. Fishermen had very little social status. They weren't well respected in society. They were, for the most part, uneducated beyond what we might consider maybe a grammar school level. They hadn't spent a lot of time studying the ancient writings or they weren't familiar with the famous rabbis. In fact, this is one of the things that vexed the Pharisees and Sadducees as much as anything. The fact that Jesus didn't dip into their ranks to draw on their wealth of knowledge and training for all the disciples that he had. In fact, when the disciples or when the apostles in Acts chapter 4 were called before the Sanhedrin, Luke tells us that the leaders of Israel, quote, understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. So these were, at the very basic sense, ordinary men. They, they had some apparent success in their fishing business. Even Matthew, who was later called in Matthew chapter 9, he was a wealthy and successful tax gatherer, although no doubt much of his uh, success gained by unethical methods like most of the tax gatherers in that day. But these four partners with their father in this successful fishing enterprise were, at least from the standpoint of the religious leadership, they were thoroughly unimpressive. They had no clout. They wouldn't have been sought out by anyone. They showed little promise to anyone. They had little experience in organizing and apparently none in public speaking. And yet this are the ones, these are the ones that Jesus would choose 
And he would choose them for a task that was like none other in history. For on these men, Jesus would build the foundation of his church. He would establish his doctrine through them. They would be the ones who were later later credited with turning the world upside down. They were chosen by the Lord to be the primary agents to set in motion the advancement of the kingdom of God until his return. They were used to have such an impact on the world, but not because of their extraordinary talent, their extraordinary giftedness, their extraordinary experience, or any of that. But because in spite of all of their limitations, in spite of their eventual uh, repeated failures along the way, these are the men who surrendered themselves to the Lord to be glorified so that God could be glorified, I should say, through them. If anything then is obvious in Jesus' disciple-making ministry, it's the fact that the men he chose were the most unlikely candidate. They were not the most skilled. They were not the most capable. They were not the ones that the world would have been taking the most recognition of. They were not high on the list of criteria that other people would have had for their uh, choice leaders or even their choice students. Jesus chose them not because they showed any great potential for success in a worldly sense. In fact, he chose them in spite of their lack of training, in spite of their lack of status. Because discipleship really isn't built on any of those things. Because it has everything to do not with status and skill, but with faith and obedience. So in calling this first group of disciples... Jesus wasn't primarily concerned about skill. He wasn't primarily concerned about education. He wasn't primarily concerned even about intellectual acumen. What he was looking for were those who were willing to follow, those who were willing to learn, men who were teachable, men who were hungry. And even as we'll see in a minute, that hunger didn't always manifest itself in a consistent way Because uh, as we'll note in a moment, Jesus had encountered these men before. He had already probably faced some level of disappointment and he would face disappointment with them again. He understood their weaknesses already at this point. But he was willing to show them the kind of patience that was necessary in order to turn out the kind of disciples that he was seeking. Now before we get into the details of of some of that, some of that interaction, I want to take note of a second detail in Jesus' design for discipleship that can help instruct us in our own task of making disciples. We'll note in the text not only that Jesus' choice of disciples defy expectations, but also this was a call that defined their mission. He You see this in verses 19 to 21. He calls each of these sets of brothers in verse 19. He says to Peter and Andrew, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And then again in verse 21, he gives a similar call to the other brothers, James and John. And make note that this is a call not to be fishers of men, at least not immediately. This was a call to let Jesus make them fishers of men he says i will make you fishers of men they weren't there yet there was still so much for them to go through so much for them to learn 
That phrase, fishers of men, obviously is an allusion to their current occupation. And it's very obvious that Jesus is calling them not only to a a new task, but in this case to an entire new occupation. He's asking them to replace their occupation of catching fish with an occupation of catching men. And it's obvious he's referring here to this ministry that he's calling to. It's a ministry of discipleship. It's eventually a ministry of apostleship. And along the way, he wants to train them in how to call other people into the kingdom of God. He wants to teach them what it means to, you might say, cast a net for men, to spread the gospel, to be used by the Lord in his work of building the kingdom. In Matthew 10, eventually, he'll send them out to do just that in their first major mission. But at this point, Jesus is just simply calling them. To follow him and let him pour his life into them. Let him make them fishers of men. Now, he doesn't want to train them only in Bible knowledge. He wants to train them in how to train others. He wants to train them in how to reproduce themselves. Fishing for men isn't just calling people to a a decision for Christ, it is the full fulfillment of the Great Commission. It is inviting people to be disciples of Christ. It is inviting them into a relationship of discipleship. And so the training that Jesus envisions is far beyond just teaching them a a few steps of gospel presentation. It will involve their entire lives. He doesn't want them just for an hour a week. He doesn't want uh, want them just for an evening a week. This wasn't an invitation to just read a book together. This was an invitation to a life. A life of being transformed day by day through the word of God as they sat under it. And he knew this would be a process. He knew it would take time. Because it takes time for the weaknesses of men to rise to the surface. It takes time when you put people into difficult situations, when you have to watch them go through disappointment and pain and suffering. It takes time to see just how they will respond in those situations. It takes time for men to learn about themselves and women to learn about themselves, to to fully understand what their need is of the Lord. It takes time for all of those things to be brought to the surface, for all of those things to to be exposed so that they can be dealt with in a good and godly way. It just takes time to train and to make disciples. So this was a calling to a process, a process of exposing them to ministry, a process of helping them think through issues, of helping them in, uh, uh, or having them, I should say, help in organization, in conflict resolution, in doing some teaching here and there. And of course, this was a process along the way of Jesus directly teaching them. At this point, from this point forward, they will be Jesus's primary audience. He'll teach and there will be crowds there. But so many times Matthew, uh, Matthew suggests that his primary focus, his primary aim of his teaching is to these men. And we shouldn't get the impression that simply because when Jesus called them, they were not well studied, that Jesus wouldn't worry about them being trained thoroughly in the Word of God. They would spend the next two years of their life in an intensive daily study at the feet of Jesus. 
He didn't choose them because of their religious knowledge, but it certainly doesn't mean that he placed no value on their training. He would spend time developing them. They would watch him along the way as he ministered. He wouldn't just simply throw them out there. He wanted them to sit back, to observe, to understand. And he didn't waste a moment of time. He kept them around him as much as he possibly could. They did very little to actually help Jesus along the way. On more than one occasion, they were uh, no doubt a headache as they would express their disagreements with Jesus. They would uh, try to correct Jesus. They would try to interfere with his plans. But they would spend much of their time observing, listening, watching learning, even misunderstanding, being corrected, and ultimately sitting under his teaching. John Calvin comments here, he says, quote, Though he chose unlearned and ignorant persons, he did not leave them in that condition. And therefore, what he did ought not to be held by us to be an example as if we were now to ordain pastors who were afterwards to be trained to discharge their office. We know the rule which he prescribes for us by the mouth of Paul that none ought to be called to it unless they are apt to teach. 1 Timothy 3.2 When our Lord chose persons of this description, it was not because he preferred ignorance to learning as some fanatics do, who are delighted with their own ignorance and fancy that in proportion as they hate literature, they approached the nearer to the apostles. He resolved at first, no doubt, to choose contemptible persons in order to humble the pride of those who think that heaven is not opened to the unlearned. End quote. So this is Jesus' design for discipleship. It was beginning with the humble but it was inviting them into what might be called an intense process. It wasn't uh, dependent, you might say, on their super intellect. It wasn't merely for scholars and academics. It was designed for ordinary people, but it was also designed to have them transformed by the consistent, you might say, the unending teaching of God's Word. And the primary qualification for entry wasn't their accolades, it was their humility. It was their readiness to obey. Which leads us really to the third detail in Jesus' design for discipleship. We've seen that it was a call that defied expectations. It was a call that defined a mission. And then finally, we can see that it's a call that demanded devotion. You see the response of Peter and Andrew in verse 20. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And then with James and John in verse 22, immediately... They left the boat and their father and followed him. The key word there obviously is immediately. These guys literally dropped everything. In the case of James and John, they even left their father. Now, of course, we know Mark tells us they were hired hands. So uh, it wasn't as if they were leaving him to manage all this on, on his own. He had resources, but these guys were leaving behind their own successful life and career in this fishing industry to come and follow Jesus. This was a call that demanded sacrifice. And 
It certainly in some ways was unique for these men. Jesus doesn't call everyone to leave behind their jobs or depart from their parents. But what he does demand is a willingness to do that, to do whatever, if necessary. Later in his ministry, Luke 14 records, Jesus will teach, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He goes on in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. A shocking language to say the least. When we say we hate, you and I often uh, think about that in terms of rage or vengeance, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. There are many things that we do where our emotional motivation doesn't always match our actions. What appears to be hate really isn't hate. In fact, it's just the opposite. Let me give you an example of that just to kind of help us understand what this call of discipleship is all about. In Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, chapter 15, verse 33, we read this, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, or in the, in the Greek Old Testament, literally hates himself. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. So why do we shrink back? Why do we turn away why do we despise when someone tries to give us uh, reproof it's really you might say out of a reflex of self-interest it's out of a desire to avoid shame it's out of a desire to avoid uh, repentance or even confession but the benefit of all of that the benefit that we are clinging on to is really short-lived while the long-term effect of not listening to that kind of rebuke or that kind of reproof or that kind of instruction, the long-term effect of that is, in fact, self-inflicted damage. That's hate. It's hate masquerading in your mind as love or masquerading in your mind as, as self-preservation. It's really hate. But but Proverbs says, the one who would listen to reproof, the one who would listen to correction and listen to counsel and take into account that counsel, listen, he may suffer short-term grief, he may suffer short-term pain, but the scripture says, you will find long-term blessing in your life. That is love We might say dressed in the robes of hate. It might appear to you as someone hating on you. It might appear to you as someone who isn't on your side or isn't defending you or whatever it might be. It might appear to you that way. Hating you, you might think, in your current life because you really want to indulge yourself. But in fact, that's not the best thing for you. So what Jesus is talking about here is that. He's talking about what might appear to be hatred, what might appear and might be misinterpreted by some people. When you shift your devotion away from those who are most loved in your life to the one who deserves your love the most, that is Christ. What Jesus is talking about in Luke 14 isn't 
emotional hatred of your loved ones. This is the call to love of Christ that may appear on the surface to be hatred. Especially those we are so close to. Those that have the greatest obligation of our love. But Jesus is calling for a new allegiance, a rearranging of the priorities in your heart and your mind and your life. So that now what you desire, now what you offer up is obedience and honor to Christ that supersedes any obligation to any other relationship, whether it is father or mother, whether it is husband or wife, whether it is children or siblings, And even to clarify what he's talking about, he says, even your own life. All of this defines a new devotion. So in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus calls these first four apostles, they understood that this was a call that demands their full devotion. And in the case of these men, it meant that Jesus was presenting them with a choice to follow him or to stay with their father, to stay with their business, to stay with their enterprise. And they understood that they had to abandon all of that. They had to leave all of that in order to answer the call of Christ. And they were willing to do it immediately. Now, when you look a little closer at the scripture when you look a little closer not only at this story but at the other gospels what you realize is that this is really a little bit more complex than you might first imagine i mentioned to you last week that there's a lot that had taken place between jesus's temptation in matthew 4 1 through 11 and the beginning of his galilean ministry in verse 12 you remember he had been down in the south in judea ministering in the area of john the baptist for about a year And it wasn't until John the Baptist was imprisoned that Jesus, when he heard about it, actually went up to Galilee. And in looking at that, we realize from those other accounts that these disciples had actually encountered Jesus already. In fact, in John 1, beginning in verse 35, Andrew had been one of John the Baptist's disciples. And when John the Baptist introduces Andrew and his brother to Uh, Sorry, when when John the Baptist introduces Andrew to Jesus, Andrew goes and fetches his brother Peter and introduces him. And it's at this point that Jesus actually gives uh, gives, uh, Simon his nickname, Peter. The whole incident probably we might envision as a call to salvation, a call for them to believe in Jesus as the true Messiah. And then Further down in verses 43 through 45, Jesus calls another pair, Philip and Nathaniel, or who we often call Bartholomew. These two other apostles were called to belief in Christ. All of that took place down in Judea, not up in Galilee. And all of it took place before John was thrown into prison. But here in Matthew, Jesus is now up in Galilee. John the Baptist has already been thrown into prison. And this comes... Uh, probably uh, much later, months later, if not a, a full year later. So this is not the first time that these guys have encountered Jesus. It's not the first time that they heard 
from him and had spoken to him. And apparently, even from Luke's gospel, Jesus had already spent time dining in Peter's home on at least one occasion. And I might add, it's not the last time that Jesus will call them. If you have your Bibles, you can look with me over at Luke chapter 5. In the first 11 verses, Luke tells a very similar story about Jesus calling Peter, James, and John. The stories are very similar because in both stories, Jesus meets them on the seashore. In both stories, he calls them to be fishers of men. But when you look at the details, it's obvious that these are different occasions. You can take note of the differences. In Luke's gospel, there are crowds, so much so that Jesus hardly has room to stand on the seashore. But in Matthew's gospel, there are no crowds. There was no teaching. In Luke's gospel, Jesus requests the use of their boat so he can launch out a little from the seashore and have a vantage point to be able to teach the people. But in Matthew's gospel, Jesus was just walking on the seashore. In Luke's gospel, he uses a different word for net, indicating a dragnet that spread between two boats. In Matthew's gospel, he uses the word for a cast net. In Luke's gospel, all three men were together. In Matthew's gospel, he encounters two of them and then walks further down the beach before he eventually finds James and John. So obviously, these are different occasions, different accounts. And so we gather from all of that that this is not the first time that these men meet, nor is it the last time. In fact, much later, in John 21... After Jesus had already been crucified, after Jesus had already risen from the grave, after he had already appeared to them in the uh, room in Jerusalem, and they had already made their way back up to Galilee, once again, he finds them back at their old trade of fishing. And he gives them the call there in Luke 21, once again telling them, follow me. At that point, at least, it seems that they listened for good. Now, all of this probably explains, by the way, in Luke's gospel, Luke 5, when Jesus does issue the second call, or even in John 21, all of it kind of explains Peter's reaction. Because in Luke 5, after Jesus is done teaching from the boat, he tells Peter to launch out into the deep, here probably now approaching the middle of the day and throw out his nets. Peter, an experienced fisherman, believes it's a futile task. He, he tells Jesus, look, we've already fished all night. We haven't caught anything. He knows that fishing in the middle of the day is, is uh, not very wise. The fish could easily see the nets. They could easily avoid the nets. Nevertheless, he obeys. And Luke tells us they bring in such a haul of fish it almost sinks the boat. At this point, Luke says, Peter fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. I believe at least, in part, this is because of Peter's guilt. Because Peter has gone back to fishing. When he's already been called, when he's already left everything, and now he's gone back. Now, who knows why? Maybe, maybe because the criticism has started to happen. Maybe because 
Uh, He himself struggled with some of the teaching. Who knows why, but for whatever reason, Peter has gone back to fishing. Maybe there were financial concerns and, and goals and things that were rising in his heart. But whatever the reason, here he is back fishing. And Matthew, excuse me, Luke tells us that Jesus comes and coincidentally, we might say, of course not, He comes right to the spot where Peter's fishing and he starts to teach. Right up on his doorstep. Right where he's working. After Peter had worked hard all night without catching a thing. And then he takes up a position in Peter's boat. And then he tells him in contradiction to everything that Peter would know by his own experience and skill. He takes him out. And gives him a, um, a command to do something that makes no sense to him as a fisherman. And he has the greatest catch of his career. This is a rebuke to Peter. And his weak faith. That believes that he could ignore the Lord's call. And go back to fishing and have success at it. And this is why I believe we find Peter falling down. And declaring himself a sinful man. If that seems a little far out for you, just consider what happened later at the end of John's gospel in John 21, as I mentioned, the post-resurrection event. Peter, James, and John had apparently gone back to fishing again. There were some striking parallels to the story. John 21, 3 says that they caught nothing all night long. When Jesus appears on the seashore, he tells them to cast their net, and they caught more fish than they were able to haul in the boat. John says there were 153 fish in their net. At the sight of this miracle, John and Peter at once recognize that it's none other than Jesus, their master. And the most interesting parallel in the whole event in John 21 is that Jesus once again uses the occasion to reiterate his call. He tells Peter three times, tend my lambs, tend my sheep. And then eventually, Follow me. Follow me. All of this had a profound impact on these men. All of it was incredibly humbling for them. So much so in Luke 5 that Jesus, that Peter falls down at Jesus' feet and Jesus has to tell him, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. Don't fear. I, I, I understand failure. I understand weakness. I understand we've been through this before. I understand that you've already made a commitment that you've backed away from. Don't fear, he says. Some people might consider all of this a, a reason to give up on a man. All of this a reason to give up on discipleship. A reason to just stop working with a difficult person. But I think Jesus understood it as a necessary lesson because for whatever reason, the first call of Peter, he didn't have this kind of response. He didn't have the kind of response in Luke 5 where he's falling at the feet of Jesus. He didn't have that kind of contrition. He probably didn't really have a sense of his own unworthiness like he needed to have. But the Lord was patient in calling Peter to this task. Uh, The understanding that Peter needed to see his weakness was a part of the process of his preparation. And this kind of contrition, it doesn't just happen overnight. That encourages me for sure. As a guy who 
himself shrinks back too often from what the Lord's called me to do, who shrinks back from my devotion the way I needed to be uh, committed to the Lord, who, uh, who sort of falls away from those early commitments that I make, might make to the Lord in whatever it might be, in prayer, in studying the Word, in sharing my faith, in serving or anything. Maybe we might say just misery loves company, but I'm encouraged when I read the Lord's patience with a man like Peter or with any of the disciples. Because I, I know what it's like to be sidetracked in my soul, to be sidetracked in personal pursuits, to make the work of the Lord and the pursuit of the Lord a secondary thing. But we also learn from all this failure doesn't negate your call. God is patient with our weaknesses. He sees our weaknesses before we do. He sees them more clearly than we do. And yet even knowing all that, He called you. He called you to discipleship. He called you to a task. And He's patient. He's patient with failures. He's patient with inconsistent commitments. When for whatever reason, it's not clear in the lives of these men, he, uh, he saw them fall away for whatever reason. He just patiently kept coming alongside of them, reminding them of his call on their life. Jesus knew this about training. He knew that those that you invest in, will sometimes, they will sometimes grow cold in their pursuits. He knew that sometimes they won't always follow through on their commitments. But he was gentle, he was patient, calling them back over and over again. Follow me, follow me. That's a lesson, by the way, not only for these apostles, it's a lesson for us, it's a lesson for anybody that we work with, and it's a lesson for us as disciples in our own walk with the Lord. Your devotion may falter, You may become distracted by other things, but the Lord is patiently calling you. And He commands you, if you haven't done it lately, He commands you to cast your net. To be a fisher of men. To walk alongside of Him, to sit at His feet, to learn from Him. And He will determine how He uses you when He uses you. He'll determine, you might say, the number of fish that are in your net when He's ready. But in the meantime, His task is for you to be close to Him. His task is for you to watch, for you to learn, for you to listen, for you to humble yourself, for you to learn what devotion is. I certainly hope that that is a a mark of our own discipleship, not only in our own following of the Lord, but in those that we work with, as we fulfill the great commission that we show this same kind of patience that the Lord showed with his initial disciples. What a tremendous encouragement as disciples of Christ. What a tremendous example as we seek to make disciples in like fashion to the master maker of disciples himself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord, we need encouragement. Lord, we need strength. We readily confess our own 
fickle hearts, our own distracted minds, our own lack of readiness to leave behind everything. Lord, we even confess how difficult it is for us to know where our responsibilities lie to our family, to our jobs, to our service in the church, and and how to balance all of that in a way that would be pleasing to you. But Lord, we present ourselves to you again right at this moment to follow you wherever you would lead, to be your true disciples, to love you above everything else. Lord, would you then be patient with us? Would you gently work with us to make us into the fishers of men that you would call us to be? And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.